Are we recording or not? It's it's recording. Let's see how this one goes. This All is right. this is it. What do you mean this is it? This is the last one. Oh my gosh, it's the end of the world as we know it. Yeah, kind of a weird one too. I feel but... okay. <laughs> I wouldn't say I feel fine. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Well, it's the end of the class as we know it. Mm. But not really because we're going to be talking about current Supreme Court cases oh. next week. Really? Which will be exciting. Yeah, we'll just going to, you know, we've got all the tools we need. We'll read the cases, listen to the arguments. We'll talk about them and, awesome. and see what we think. And so in a way, this reading, it's my attempt to pull some strands together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by this point, we've seen, you know, how to make legal arguments, some typical law and policy moves through law and economics, through normative reasoning, like what kinds of arguments do people make? What, why do people argue the law should be this rather than that? Well, we did a little bit of that. We learned a little bit about courts reasoning and precedent, a little bit about public choice theory and the problems of legislatures. And we've talked about the administrative state. And we've introduced that institutionalist dimension. That's right. Which is a way to begin to take your conversation about the reasons for choosing legal standards and pull it up to a conversation about which institutions could be grappling with those questions about how to have which legal standards. Right. Then, of course, that raises the question, well, how should I choose from among these different institutional approaches to these uh, formulations of legal policy? And that's how we end up where we are here. Because, I mean, you know, Ba-boom. we can bring to bear all of the analytical tools that we already learned about from gun control to abortion to regulation of of, of building height in a town, right? Sure. I mean, we have all these questions about what should we do? What should we allow, right? What would be a good idea to do? What would be a good idea to allow? And we see those are kind of different questions. And we have all the, you know, we have our arguments about law and economics and we have our arguments about um, uh, um, deontology and we can bring all, you know, we, we know we've learned some of these things now. And we've learned as we just talked, as you just summed up, Joe, we've learned the institutional perspective that mm. institutions approach these questions in different ways under different kinds of incentives. And the statutory interpretation stuff that we just talked about in a way was a bridge to this final reading mm. because it gives us a picture of a legal system as a system and not just discrete decision makers, right? These Mm. are people talking to one another. Institutions talking to one another. That's right. One institution taking the output of another institution, trying to make sense out of it. And institutions are made of people, my friend. But yes, they (laughs) exactly that, right? Whether, Whether it's a court interpreting a statute from a legislature on the one hand and a constitution written by some framers on the other hand and channeling the people in there somewhere and then they have their own institutional prerogatives to think about. It could be an agency trying to interpret the handiwork of the legislature or it could be a court trying to interpret the handiwork of an agency. Or a court trying to interpret the agency's interpretation of the legislature, right? So you can have multiple layers going. So a legal system is, is an integrated set of institutions all talking to one another. And each institution kind of has to decide how it's going to treat those interpretations, those actions of the other institutions, Mm. right? And so we move, I think, to a level beyond just grappling with, is this a good thing or not? You know, the the kind of, like if you saw a debate on gun control on a a cable news network or or in an op-ed, right? You would see the kinds of, you would see variations of the kinds of arguments we might have made early on in the course, right? Whether law and econ or deontology you might not yeah. see them siloed in quite the way we tried but 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 and i think you'd also see some discussion about who should make uh various policy choices who should be ma- where the center of gravity of policy making should be mm-hmm. you know some discussions about should it be state 
governments or national governments? Uh, should it be uh, sh- should it be popularly elected governments or are there constitutional constraints? Right? You see, you hear right. some institutional. You hear some institutional too. argument, right? Yeah, right. And and that's really what this section is a, is about, right? How do we allocate? Like, who should make that? decision, that fundamental kind of policy-based decision. And and if someone, if some other institution has made that decision, or at least has written about it, or has passed something tangentially related to it, how do I use that data, right? How do I use that information to inform the decision that I have to make, right? So if I'm a court and a legislature has passed some statute, say regulating working hours in a bakery, for example, and I have a constitution which says there's you can't deprive someone of due process. Uh, you can't. <laughs> you, can't you can't deprive someone of property without due process of law. Um, it's interesting. We do say deprive of due process sometimes, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. Due process deprivation, but really, what we mean is without. Yeah, it's a liberty yeah. deprivation or yeah, yeah. a property deprivation. Yeah. Weird. Or, or a life deprivation. The things that you don't think about. Yeah. How do I? You know, the legislature also. This goes back to Marbury against Madison, right? I mean, the legislature has its own institutional responsibility to follow the Constitution. Certainly. By passing the statute, it has made a judgment about that, right? Yeah. Because. After all, if only implicitly. Well, the legislature didn't, it, it's not like it, it shook off the other kinds of instructions from the Constitution. It didn't say, well, a third of us agreed to this, <laughs> right? And so we're going to send it off to the president for his signature and act, and, and, and act like, it's, uh, right. like it's a law. No, they, or, they or no, let's send it to the vice president for a signature, <laughs> right? I mean, yeah, right. they followed very the um, some of the content of the document. Presumably, they were trying to comply with all of it. Marbury says, of course, as we know, that the court will take a will, will take an active role in determining the fit with what you did with the Constitution. It's not enough that you decided this was constitutional. Right. Nonetheless, they did decide it was constitutional, even if only implicitly. They made a policy judgment. Who's they? The legislature. The legislature. Okay. And and now what does the court do? Right. What does the court do with that? Especially when confronted with a somewhat vague provision in the Constitution. Got to take that input, which was the other institution's output, and turn it into its own output. Right. And. And then think about like you know what would they do? does this make sense does it not if if we start to think about the uh, say the regulation of hours of bakers in a bakery as a as a, a kind of policy based law and economic kind of judgment in the way that the majority kind of proceeded there what do, what do we do with that like do do we say well the, the, you know the, the, we can't think of good reasons why this would have been passed only bad reasons and those bad reasons offend the constitution therefore we're going to chuck it out or are we going to say we can agree to disagree are we going to say only in the most outrageous cases mm. are we going to so how do we do this we know in the context of 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 administrative agency regulations right where the statute provides some authority but that statute has ambiguity in the in the or some gap or some instruction to fill it in, the agency fills it in. Mm-hmm. And we, as we discussed last time, the courts, at least as of now, as of this recording, <laughs> defer to the agency under, this, uh, under the Chevron doctrine in those cases, meaning that w- when the agency fills those gaps, however they come, uh, with permissible or reasonable constructions of the statute, then that's, that's what the statute means, mm-hmm. right? It's the authority of the agency to say what the statute means, right. at least within permissible bounds. All right, so this whole thing is about this kind of calculus. Like, how do we think about, as, an, as a court, let's just focus on courts. Uh, how do we think about how to allocate that policy-making decision, this level two decision-making, as I call it in the little excerpt that I included? Like, that seems to me kind of the essence of a legal system, right? If you want to know what a legal system is, you just need to look at the way that it is allocated that level two policy-making authority. Like, who gets to decide what our priorities are going to be? And what weight will, you know, 
a more complicated legal system doesn't necessarily give everyone 100% authority on particular questions, right? Sometimes you have right. shared authority. You know, one person gets to say what they want to do, maybe regulation of guns or regulation of baking hours, but then another institution gets to pass on the reasonableness of that or, you know, or, or maybe doesn't get to pass at all, right? So there's this kind of allocation of decision-making uh, that occurs in every legal system. And I don't know, that's that's something I didn't really understand until... I don't know, getting all the way through law school. So these students in this class are in a position to appreciate something that they might not have always appreciated yeah. until getting into I think some people who come to law school, probably virtually all people who go to law school, don't, uh, wouldn't be able to articulate what you just said. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and I'm not sure I articulated well what I just said either, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, so let, let, why don't we talk about Lochner? Okay. Do you want to? Sure, why not? Uh, I'm willing to talk about whatever you want to talk about. I, you know, it's, the, it's, your, it's your show. <laughs> it, the sky's the limit. We can talk about whatever we want here. Cool. You know, I, I thought that you couldn't really, I don't know, can, can you teach a course like this without Lochner being there, without like at least referring to Lochner? I mean, it is this like specter in the Supreme Court's basement, right? Yeah, it does haunt uh, judicial review. I think once once you have read Marbury, you are going to read Lochner. Mm. Um, it would be weird to read one without the other. And once you read Lochner, you have to read something like Caroline Products, Early Optical. Yeah. Um, or West Coast Hotel or one of these other yeah. New Deal. So you're going to read a pre-New Deal case, like, and Lochner is the example of this. Right. And then you're going to read one of these post-New Deal or in the middle of the New Deal cases, right. you know, which repudiates the Lochner doctrine. Yeah. So as you say, you know, you got more significantly qualifies it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Mar, <laughs> so, so Marbury says it's the, it's the Supreme court, federal courts, which say what the law is. That's the office of the court, right? Well, that doesn't really tell you how you're going to do that. Right. And, and so one way of reading Lochner is it's just the court saying what due process of law means or what the liberty of contract means. Right. And they, they do that by, so, you know, looking at human transactions in a very particular way, right? That you know, and they a- indicate, for example, there are some uh, there are some state regulations uh, that uh, impinge on people's ability to reach certain private agreements, mm-hmm. um, and that those uh, regulations are are perfectly uh, permissible. Um, because they're justified by reasons. In other words, they're engaging in that, what I call that level two reasoning or the kinds of reasons we talked about at the beginning of the course. You know, they say, well, this one makes sense. It makes sense because, right. you know, so it's regulating hours in a dangerous profession because if you don't use care, you're going to cause accidents, right? right. That would so be, the limiting the mine, the number of hours you could be below ground in the mine, right. I think would fall into that or could fall into that right. category. Um, uh, so, so there are, in the process of explaining why they find this baking hours, uh, hours of working in the bakery uh, being constrained, so private agreements cannot be reached and carried into effect that that go beyond that maximum number of work hours, 60 I think was the number, um, uh, that although that one uh, doesn't pass muster, uh, there are others that do. Mm-hmm. And trying to explain why this one doesn't, the court spends some time talking about others that do. Right. I think that's helpful as a way to try to understand how the court views its role uh, in working through the that's reasons the key, why. Right? That the key here is the role, that yeah. the court is making that kind of decision. We're saying, does this regulation make sense? Right. Let's see what kinds of reasons would support 
a rule right. like would, would support a law like this, and yeah. we don't find one. So it's viewing the the Marbury process of taking uh, one way to describe the Marbury process is you take the statutory output and you hold it up against this is a common metaphor in discussing Marbury you hold it up against the Constitution and see if it squares if it measures right and they're they seem to be doing that with these state regulations they're holding them up against what they take to be a constitutional principle about the freedom to engage in certain contractual arrangements that meet your own private objectives that that's a freedom people have yeah uh, and that would include a freedom to enter into a contract where I agree to work for you at a certain wage and you agree uh, that I'm going to do it 70 hours a week, yeah. right? The statute yeah. says we can't have that contract. Or 150 hours a week. Whatever right? it might right. be, right? Yeah. Um, but but so, so we, have a, a, we have a deal we want to strike, so it would appear, and the statute says you can't, right? So they're taking that statute and they're holding it up against that constitutional principle of a freedom to engage in certain deal-making behavior, contractual behavior, and saying, eh, nope, can't have this kind of statute. Right. right? Um, because, I mean, you know, we've got basically a willing buyer and a willing seller here and government coming in between them and saying you can't do this. And what the court is saying is if you're going to interfere like that, you've got to have a good reason. And we are the... We, place you we, go to find out what the we, reasons are. Yeah, we are. police the set of acceptable reasons. Correct. Right? And, and, and so this is almost in the, over in the, in, in the realm of would we have done this, right? So this is the concern here, right? In policing reasons, are you yourself becoming the reason giver, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you say, well, you know, uh, regulating for this reason is, is bad um, because, you know, so we suspect because we can't find any of the acceptable reasons here that actually there was a bad reason. Maybe, and maybe even there was in this case. There might have been a to- totally anti-competitive, corrupt reason for regulating uh, this particular thing, right? And the court kind of hints at that when it says there's no... Well, you know, there's not a good safety reason. There's mm-hmm. not a good public health reason. They go through all of the kind of reasons which would justify it. And they say all of those are missing. And therefore, this thing has to fall. Because they Although need if this issue is like most issues, there, there, are, there are probably, on at least a few of those dimensions, there are probably reasonable disagreements to be had about the quality of the evidence and oh, of course, yeah. the nature of this, uh, the burden, uh, wh- where you're putting the the risk of non-persuasion, what sort of demand are you making of, of uh, how, how well persuaded am I that this is the fact, given that the evidence will be mixed? Yeah, so right? w- once you've decided that, that, that the, as the court, you will police the set of reasons which could justify this statute, in other words, you, you have the set of level two reasons, right? Then what's left is to decide whether applying the facts to that reason yields the result in this case. That's what I call this level one reasoning, right? This is the basic level. Once yeah. you've decided that, you know, you can't pass a statute, or that you can pass a statute regulating work hours to protect the public health, then the question is, well, does this protect the public health? Right. We all agree on the reason, right? Now it's just a matter of whether we, whether we agree that that reason applied to the facts will yield the result that the statute should yeah. fall. And. The court does both things, right? One decides, here are the sets of reasons which are appropriate. We get to decide those things. And two, um, they don't justify, you know, none of those acceptable reasons would justify the outcome in this case. Mm-hmm. So, huh, it, how do you, you know, it, what result here? Well, the result is that if, if you are of the frame of mind so as to see everything through kind of a formal lens, right? That there's kind of formal liberty, you know, that, that to be free means that you have the freedom to engage in any 
contract that you want to, that you can, you know, the poor and rich alike can sleep under bridges, mm. that sort of thing. Like it's right. this kind of formal liberty without looking at like practical economic coercions on people, right? So you take a very, you know, Herbert Spencer's uh, <laughs> approach, as, as Justice Holmes says, then then you would see this as a restriction on liberty and you would want to insist that it be supported by reasons and you don't find those reasons, et cetera. So, so we end up with the result that we have. Now, the dissent here turns out to have had the, the better argument in the long run by saying that the legislature is the body in our system of government appointed with choosing policies, right? They get to choose not only what to do, but they get to choose the why as well, right? Unless they are clearly... Right. offensive to some important constitutional value. Very wide latitude on the reasons for choosing a particular course as well as choosing that course itself right. um, by doing something like passing a statute that regulates working hours in bakeries. And so Holmes is advocating here for a, a, a kind of review that that is very similar to modern day what we would call rational basis review. Okay, And rational basis review means that a court presented with a statute that someone claims violates the due process clause or not a specific provision of the Constitution, but, you know, this interferes with my liberty and without due process of law, and, you know, and, and it does it because there's no good reason for this thing. The legislature has acted arbitrarily, capriciously. This is just, this is just bad. Well, the court will review those kinds of regulations, except in what we'll discuss in a second, except in certain areas, right. for a rational basis, which means could a, can we even conceive that a reasonable legislature would have come up with um, would have come up with a policy like this one. Basically, is there any kind of legitimate, can we dream up a legitimate government purpose for this regulation? And then is the language that they chose rationally related to that purpose? No. It's a very loose kind of review, which basically means you're going to uphold the statute. Yeah, most things are going to have no trouble clearing that hurdle. Right. Mo- most statutes, um, that, uh, especially statutes that regulate economic affairs, Yeah, uh, are going to have very little difficulty uh being shown to be valid under that uh, within that framework. So it looks like we're kind of caught here in a way, right? If if we take seriously Marbury's idea that the court says what the law is and that it is an important check on the legislature. Yep. We also um think that um in order to find out whether the legislature is acting unconstitutionally, you got to kind of look into their reasons and and the court has to police those reasons in some way. But on the other hand, if the legislature is supposed to be a policymaker, then how can it do that if the court is always is, is itself choosing what the good reasons are and then and then policing very carefully how those reasons fit with what they've chosen? It looks like the court in that case, if they are following the majority in Lochner, is really acting like a super legislature. Like you can pass a, a wage and hour law if we think it's a good idea because the court in Lochner basically says we don't think this is a good idea. We can't. This doesn't seem reasonable to us. Right. Which is to say. You know, in order to be a valid piece of legislation, it's got to pass both houses of the Congress, be signed by the president, and then approved by the Supreme Court. But that's not what the Constitution says, right? And so we're kind of caught here in a way, right? So, but so if if everything is this loosey goosey rational basis review, then what's left of the Constitution? Like if the Supreme Court's just going to rubber stamp everything that Congress does, seems like a quandary. Um, I suppose it does, uh, although um, it it is treating as the same all the possible conceivable topics on which legislation could be written, I think, A. Yeah. B, um, it's treating as not worth talking about 
um, any of the reasons why you might expect that people who lost today's legislative battle might or might not win tomorrow's right. legislative battle. Those two things might actually interact, the two things I just described. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, are, what is the subject of the legislation? What's, what is it really about? And um, what, is the, uh, what is your expectation about the normal functioning of the political process to choose policy? So, um, yeah, and this, and this in conditions in, of yeah. uncertainty about what policies are best, one thing I think everyone could agree on is they would like the policy-making machinery to be able to adjust to new information, to adjust to new evaluations of old information. And so if a bad policy is chosen, it would be nice if the policy machinery could change its mind yeah, and, and adopt a better policy. Um, and the, consti- the, the, the sort of Lochner approach one thing about the constitution is it's it's the big gun in the room right yeah where once you say passing that regulation violates the constitution well that means you gotta either change the constitution yeah. text or you gotta come up with a new view of the constitution itself yeah which is something it's like wage, wage and hour laws they're not just a bad idea they're against the law <laughs> <laughs> they're against the constitution <laughs> yeah, right, right right so and it's and it's you know it's hard to get judges to change their mind that takes time and so um, it, and, and may never happen because it could be that the thing they said was perfectly correct and everyone believes it to be correct. So, so you, you know, to constitute, as you sometimes hear lawyers say, right, if you constitutionalize an issue, mm-hmm. you're fundamentally changing its future in a way that you probably want to be mindful well, of. Well, I want to back up because all of the considerations you talk about would seem important in choosing between these options that the court has, right? So it seems like what the court needs in order to fulfill its role under Marbury and at the same time not be a super legislature, is it needs some kind of theory, which just means reasons, for why it will look closely at some legislative enactments and yet look very loosely at others. Like, if it looks very closely at every act of legislation, then it is a super legislature. It is basically playing that approving role. Do we agree with these reasons? If it looks at none, it's a rubber stamp. It's a rubber stamp. And so what it needs is a theory which says, you know, there's a certain zone of legislation where there's a or danger. Or a certain category. A, a, yeah, where there may be a danger of constitutional, um, uh, what's the right word? Um, uh, not erasure exactly, but, but that if you don't play this role, then there's a danger that the legislature will truly overstep its bounds and, and break with the spirit of the Constitution and its text. Right. And so we need some set of reasons. And you started to rehearse some of those reasons. Yep. And Caroline, but, but Caroline basic, Products is all about this. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, but at a basic level, the, um, I mean, in a way, it's the equivalent of asking like, okay, I've, you know, I'm going to build these levees. So where should I build them? I know. Let's build them in the Kansas Plains. Well, no. Maybe you want to build them in New Orleans where there's like the coast, right? So you, <laughs> you've got to go looking for the places where there are going right. to be problems so that you can use the right solutions. Right. So if you're, and, and here the tool that is available is a more searching form of scrutiny for making sure that con- the legislature has stayed within constitutional bounds. Right. right? So you, you, as you were saying, you need a theory that tells you, well, where, where might, where might it be more likely that the legislature would slip constitutional bounds? It could be one way of tackling not being rubber stamp or being a super legislature. And 
So Caroline Products tries to do that, right? It does. It footnote tri- 4, the most famous footnote in constitutional law history. In, in the text, it happens to be footnote 4. Um, did you notice that? That what? In- that, 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 so, so there's no particular reason for this because the footnotes are just kind of all through the whole book, right? I, I didn't control them separately, but it actually is footnote 4. Oh, I assumed that it was, you had done that. It would be scandalous. And <laughs> if students, it were footnote 1 or something correct, like that. Correct. <laughs> that would be a complete scandal. Because I didn't include the other three footnotes, from the, the first three footnotes from the case. But the fourth footnote is, so that footnote is the most important part of this case. And it is very, very famous in U.S. constitutional law. Yeah. And it is famous as footnote four. <laughs> so it was actually numbered right. in the U.S. reports of that decision um, from April 1938. Uh, it, it was footnote four. And it's important because it represents an important advance in terms of thinking about the Supreme Court's role. The yes. very first case we read in this class, Marbury, right, was about establishing the Supreme Court's role. But that is a story that was not finished then. Like, what does it mean to say what the law is? Like, you know, do you say what you think it is or do you have to defer? Who gets to say what it is? All that, you know, how do you define the Supreme Court in a legal system? And that is just an unfolding story, which is continuously being written even today. Yep. And Caroline Products is an important advance because it gives us a set of reasons that we might want to consult as a court to decide when we're going to look closely at a piece of legislation and make sure that the legislature is acting with very good reason, and when we will look less closely, just in the sense that this is up to the legislature, and if we look too closely, we would be basically reviewing everything. So how do you avoid those two poles? Here's a theory for doing that, right? Right. And one set of reasons would be, does the legislation aim at rights explicitly mentioned in the Bill of Rights? Right, That's one set of reasons. So if, if the legislation is targeted at speech, right, that might be a reason to look closely at, you know, because the Constitution is, has a particular concern with unpopular speakers and protecting speakers and the right. freedom of speech is there because of that. And so if it targets speech, maybe we want to make sure that there is a very good justification for it and that the means chosen are basically hit the bullseye, that they really do hit that justification. Now, this is a kind of a review, unlike rational basis, which is obviously very, very scrutinizing, and it is called strict scrutiny. Right. This other form this is other strict. Form, yes. right. Rational basis is not strict. It's very loose and right. forgiving. So I need to see, if I'm a court applying strict scrutiny, I need to see that there is a compelling governmental interest that Congress has pursued or the legislature, if it's a state legislature, has pursued, and that the means chosen, the statute, is narrowly tailored to hitting that compelling governmental interest. Okay, and, so you really got, do, and you really do need both those things you have for to have, it to be okay. It has to be a permissible objective and it has to be well achieved. And, and in fact, a compelling objective. So, so not everything falls into this category. And so what does it mean to be narrowly tailored? Um, it, it means that you can't sweep in more conduct than you're aiming at. And if you sweep up less, so even being under-inclusive can be Could fatal. Could be a problem, yeah. Because it... Because so it, it, raises, it raises the inference that maybe you weren't, that's not the real reason. So mm. we're so concerned in this area that the, that the compelling justification is your real reason, that right. part of the reason we're looking to see that you hit the bullseye is that if you don't, we're concerned maybe that wasn't your real reason. And kind of right. in the area of, say, speech regulation, having something other than a compelling justification makes us concerned that, in fact, you're acting in, in, to suppress free speech. And, and again, the area that you enumerated is we're, and we're looking at footnote four, one thing it says is if we're talking about a, a topic 
as to which there are these individual rights protections in the Bill of Rights, in other words, an effort to say government has to be constrained against doing certain things. And it is so this is an instance where it appears as if you may be trying to do a thing you've been right. told you're not permitted to do. And someone has to, you know. And, and we, so we need to referee that. And the court, in a more the court rigorous needs to way. back that up. It's so important the court needs to back it up. Yes, you're told not to do it. Yes, you know, you have an independent right. obligation under the Constitution not to do it, but the court is going to play a, a, a backing up role here. Correct. Okay, so th- those in a way are kind of easy, although the First Amendment law is hardly easy, right? Because <laughs> there are lots of regulations that kind of tangentially hit speech. We may be regulating conduct, like, right. you know, something which saying, you know, you know, you can't, don't mutilate your draft card. It's got to be, we got to be able to see it. You know, we have to use it for governmental purposes, but then you burn it in a ceremony. And now you attack this law. Express as, your yeah. objection to the, right. Now you attack this law. It turns out, it turns out that's kind of a hard case. Right. Government may have had a perfectly legitimate reason for wanting to have these intact records, and yet it is targeting the kind of activity that the First right. Amendment seems concerned with. So that's an example where, and I won't go into the doctrine here at all, but there is a kind of an in-between category called intermediate scrutiny. Right. And it's no surprise that in these forms of scrutiny, courts very quickly start to entertain what are the other ways to achieve some of these objectives that would have had less would have impaired constitutional concerns yeah. less grievously. So you you start imagining other alternatives. So inter, yeah, intermediate scrutiny insists on an important governmental interest rather than compelling, right? And that sometimes they'll say the least restrictive means. Sometimes they'll say, um, do they say narrowly tailored? I, I forget think they all say well tailored. Well tailored. Yeah. Well, well tailored sounds like a really it sounds like tailoring at that point. It sounds like you're making a suit. <laughs> Uh, but but carefully i've heard carefully tailored the mean the means end fit doesn't have to be quite as precise as with strict scrutiny the interest doesn't have to be quite as compelling but doctrinally how these are distinct i I think strict scrutiny outside a few areas which are probably not true strict scrutiny is fatal in fact the court says it's not but off you know the the whole ball game in a first amendment case is is getting to whether whether strict scrutiny applies if it applies the court's going to strike it down because Congress just will not hit the, you know, the legislatures will not hit that bullseye. Because <laughs> uh, it's hard to hit. It's hard to hit because you can always show that, you know, if this was your real concern, you would have regulated this, but you didn't. Therefore, or, you know, you reached too broadly because you sweeped in these other people who, you know, if you stop them from speaking, doesn't serve this concern that you raise. Right. Um, so uh, intermediate scrutiny in between. So we got rational basis, intermediate scrutiny, and strict scrutiny. And these are kind of our three choices. This is the modern framework of, of rights right. review in the Supreme Court. There's, I don't think we've gotten footnote four fully on the table I, yet. I, I want to wait on that because I want to mention equal protection before we get there, just to motivate it. So as we know, there is this clause in the Constitution which says that no state shall deny people in this jurisdiction equal protection of the laws. Right? And what does this mean? So if we think it means that all laws have to treat everyone equally, we're lost. Because the very nature of the law is to make distinctions. Like the, the law treats murderers differently than non-murderers. Happily, yes. Yeah, exactly, right? So, <laughs> I'm quite happy about that. So the, the law, you know, its basic character is distinction-making. Correct. Right? And so the kind of equality in that clause can't mean, it just cannot mean that everybody is treated exactly the same. Right. A, a, a quite small thing that it could mean, um, I don't think it means this either, uh, or at least not only this, uh, but a very small thing it could mean is, um, you know, everyone in town um, gets to avail themselves equally of the police yeah. and the fire right. brigade. Right. Um, that That's literally protection. 
of the law. Everyone can equally in the town right. gets to go and say to the chief of police, there's someone bothering me at my house or I think someone broke into my car. Uh, and that uh, that's something everyone should be able to do. That would be the protection of the law and everyone equally could avail themselves of it. Exactly. That You could do that. But maybe it should go further. Maybe it should be more substantive. So if you if you think – so compare these two laws and these are both real laws um, – one law is, is is a law in a local area which says that in this area of town, this zone, um, there shall be no African-Americans, only whites. And in this other zone of town, only African-Americans and, and no whites. So basically a racial zoning law. Talking about places to live? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Not places to be present. No, only, although you could. Like that would also work, right? So, so, it, yeah. so we're making a, a law which distinguishes where people can live or where they can work or some other kind of thing based on on okay. race um, with a law which says that no person in this area can operate a business, right? It can only be residential. It can only be area. residential, right? So typical zoning, which says residential, residential uses over here, but no business uses. And on this other area of town, only business uses, no residential uses. Right. There are various ways of doing it. Now, both of those laws make distinctions, right? Indeed. One treats business users differently than residential users. The other treats people differently based on their race. What do we do with such a law? What do we do with such a law? So if we apply rational basis review, what result? Now, I know what I would do in a rational basis review, but if we remember that rational basis review is very different, can we dream up any possible justification for this, assuming good motives of the legislature? Right. Could a reasonable person think that this serves those means? So, so even in the racial cases, and there, people did make these arguments sure. about riots and violence and yep. other things, like you know. And, and the you can you can recast obviously the the Baker's Hour Bill in Lochner can be recast as the the zoning rule. Yeah. Right. Where yeah. you know um, these kinds of contracts can be for for these kinds of hours. Those other kinds of contracts can be for other hours. Mm-hmm. So you could describe the Lochner statute in just the same way that you described the zoning statute. That's right. Which is why the rational basis review or the more searching review question, the question about how to review it, um, is is going to be present in all of these instances. And it's going to be determinative or at least drive much of the determination, right? So if we conclude rational basis, we're probably going to uphold the law. If we insist on strict scrutiny, we're probably going to strike it down. Uh, so what do we do? When do we act as a super legislature? When do we act as a rubber stamp? Or is there, you know, this decision we're making about whether to act as one or the other is basically the decision about like what to do, right? And so Caroline Products comes in to give us such a reason, right? It gives, with respect to equal protection and with respect to due process, it helps us figure out, or at least it gives us a set of reasons courts might use to be one or the other, right? That's its real value. And as I said, one set of reasons to review searchingly is targeting a right listed in the Bill of Rights. Yep. But the other is this thing that you were getting to earlier, Joe, and I just kind of stopped us from getting there to set it up with equal protection, but that oftentimes we can trust the legislature, or at least our Constitution is set up, to trust the legislature to choose policies, right? Yep. And if we don't like those policies, we vote them out. Yep. The discipline on legislatures is electoral, Correct. Right? You don't like what they're doing, you vote them out. It's a bad policy, you vote them out. Yep. You don't go rushing to the court and saying, hey, they're doing a bad thing, uh, or, or you know, at least a bad thing in the way, you know, I just think it's bad policy. I've studied law and economics, and I think this is stupid. And, you know, they've put in place rent control, and I think that's only going to drive, it's only going to decrease the supply of housing, that's going to be bad, blah, blah, blah. Well, the answer to that is vote them out. Yeah, in much the same way that if someone is selling coffee in town that you don't think tastes good, go buy it from somebody else. Yeah. 
and then that person will prosper. If a lot of people agree with you that it, that coffee tastes lousy, the other coffee seller will prosper. The one who sells lousy tasting coffee will not prosper. Right. Indeed, will probably close. Um, and, and things work themselves out. And if you're on the losing side of an issue that's really important to you, you can go gather support for your issue either right. by convincing other people, right? You know, using the First Amendment, which the court will police with great scrutiny, as we just discussed, which right. is a part of this, right? Or you can form coalitions with people. So, you know, this is really important to you. Find something that's important to someone else. You guys form a coalition. You right. work together. In other words, the normal day-to-day push and pull of politics. Now, this doesn't is, always work. Right. Why doesn't it work? Why do you think it doesn't work, Joe? What, 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 what does the court say here in Caroline Products? It kind of intimates it, doesn't it? It doesn't really give a full political science theory in this footnote, does it? <laughs> right. but, no, it but, doesn't. But, but, but it is the, what they do say is kind of pregnant with implication, wouldn't you say? Uh, I would, but why don't you say? Well, I I don't want to guess through what you have in mind. I want you to just well, I don't say think you what need you to have guess. I mean, it's the most famous footnote in all of the law. So, <laughs> I, so it is like this is the normal. Like the reason that the court would normally rubber stamp, basically, is because the electoral remedy is the one for bad policy. So if you're a loser in the political system, right, right, you might be a winner tomorrow, and and you're. And Your remedy good. is at the ballot box and in forming right. coalitions with others. And that's a great way for policy to get made, to grow, and ebb and flow with new information as things happen in the world. But what if, what if for whatever reason, the majority singled you out as a repeat loser, as someone who could be uh, made the loser every time? We might be actually be better off, right? I mean, in fact, you know, um, what you know, one of the reasons Plato, the Greek philosopher, was so against democracy was because it was the rule of the mob, mm. right? And that's why he favored this kind of elite bunch of philosopher kings. Maybe like Ar- the Supreme Court. Aristocracy. Yeah. The rule of the best. The, the rule of the best. So some elite institution, right, would would decide on wise policies. And his concern, of course, was that the mob would basically enrich themselves at the expense of everyone else, right? There would be this total rent-seeking behavior, a little bit like we learned about in public choice theory, mm-hmm. right? This, this is the danger, right? The majority will only seek to enrich itself at the expense of a minority, so if you can identify a minority with which you don't have a lot of ties maybe and and you could enact laws which kind of keep them down and you gain benefits from that. Think right. of a racial caste system, right? Where you pass laws which maintain a kind of servile class and the majority reaps all of the benefits of that. Like so the mob if you like, right? If you want to use Plato's terms. So maybe we do, maybe Plato was right about this. Maybe we do need philosopher kings to stop the mob. (laughs) But when they are not a mob, maybe we don't need philosopher kings who are, after all, no wiser than the rest of us uh, a lot of the time. And what's pernicious about, there are many things pernicious about it, but but one thing that's importantly pernicious about uh, the, uh, the example of a racial caste system put into place as a matter of policy, legal policy, um, is it's an attack on that process of day-to-day politics. Right. If the, if the I lost yesterday, uh, I might win tomorrow way of thinking about things is allowed to operate, um, then over time, good policies can emerge and bad policies can fade away. Yeah. But if you lock into place a, a legal system where the bad ideas can't get exposed to disapproval yeah. tomorrow uh, based on better information, then you really have created a pretty big problem for yourself. 
you, you really have locked yourself into a system of inferior results. I, I would also say that majoritarianism is not a solution we adopt because it is inherently the best solution, right? I mean, we have reasons for democracy, right? Respect for the individual, autonomy of the individual, right. and this basic idea that, that no person is inherently more morally worthy than any other person, right? Right. And, and democracy is a way of kind of of doing that like but, but it not, could also be used to mount an attack on it well that's and, it, so when it does that right so when the right. <laughs> when the tools of democracy democracy are seized by the mob seized by a majority who are determined to uh, um to to keep a minority in a servile position or to otherwise to expropriate from them right when when it when democracy is being as de, being used as a tool not to vindicate the equal worth of human beings but to denigrate it that's exactly when you need some other institution to step in and say stop it, right? And right. so this is this is the theory, right? That when you when you can identify a minority, this is a political minority, which happens maybe also to be a racial minority or some other kind of minority. But when you have a political minority, which in the court's words in footnote four is discrete and insular, right? Meaning it's identifiable, like you know, the people can know who's in that minority by various signs, right? And it's insular in the in that they're unlike, there's unlikely to be this kind of law, legislative log rolling. There's unlikely to be a lot of like transaction coalition and, and coalition building, and, yeah. right? Um, and a law targets that discrete and insular minority. That's when you should be suspicious right. as a court. And that's a, that's a specific uh, example of another general thing you could describe as l- laws that try to subvert the political process itself. That's right. another category the court mentions. Right. That, that I think is distinct from the discrete and insular minority point, um, although I do think you can think of the, that as a species of the other. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing the discrete and insular minority targeting law does is it can be a way of attacking the political process itself. Right. So when we go back to equal protection and we're asking ourselves, okay, so every law makes a distinction, right? I mean, the, you know, based on age, you know, the drinking age, based on, you know, uh, the, the law which says I can't get a license unless I can see well or have corrective lenses that treats, you know, people who can't see well even with corrective vision differently. Than, you know, and that's that's not good, right? Treat everybody equally. Well, <laughs> there's some consequences to driving a car, right? So, uh, so, so when are we going to look at such laws, it's basically all laws, when are we going to look at any particular law with great scrutiny, and when are we going to look at that law with great deference? And the footnote four theory translates into saying that when a law makes a distinction, right, in such a way that it disadvantages a member of a discrete and minority, courts, you should be suspicious that something bad is afoot. And what what is bad that is afoot is the subversion of democracy by a majority, right? The use of these coercive tools that government has by a, major- by a majority to expropriate some minority. What we're looking for here is a trigger. So, so when a law, for example, makes a distinction based on race, the court should be suspicious and it should look at the law more carefully. And there's a lot of, I think, really good academic debate, right, about whether the court has this right. Just making a distinction based on race, maybe that shouldn't make us suspicious unless what you observe is a law which is targeting a racial minority, right? Uh, but the current state of the law is that, that if a law makes a distinction on the basis of race, strict scrutiny applies, right? If a law makes a distinction based on uh, vision, being able to see at a driver's license uh, facility, a DMV, rational basis. Correct. Uh, distinctions on gender, interestingly enough, get intermediate scrutiny, although 
Justice Ginsburg's been working on that. Would you say <laughs> to make the, it stricter? The VMI stricter. case, yeah, uses right. this ex- exceedingly persuasive justification standard. Right. So most of the debate here in the, in in terms of adjudicating constitutional rights is over the standard of review that the court will use to review that statute. And it's fascinating that, and, and it's, although I do not teach in the constitutional law area, and I am not a constitutional law scholar, you play one on the radio though. I, <laughs> it is my <laughs> it is my impression that um, in broad outline. With lots of qualifications, yeah. Uh, but in broad outline, the the footnote four in set of insights um, is remained in, intact. Remains is, intact after all these largely years. Largely the way con law yeah. works in the U.S. today. And and you can also look at it, look at it as embracing kind of an, a political economy of trust, right? It, it basically instructs the court to to say, you know, is this a trustworthy move by the legislature? And if it's not, then more scrutiny, and it lays out some some typical kinds of things that a legislature would target, which would cause one to be skeptical or to be suspicious, right? And um, which is partly why um, uh, the the term of art for when you go to strict scrutiny under equal protection is when a law aims at a suspect class. And so, if in the post Caroline Products world, you might say that. Lochner is uh, is is a bit of a pig in a parlor, right? It's a it's a right thing in a wrong place, right? Uh, you, it's good to scrutinize certain things that much, yeah. Um, just not those things. To <laughs> um, so the it's important to the, what you what you take away as being the problem in Lochner, if a problem it be, um, can change as you develop your set of reasons right. for picking some institutions over other institutions, et cetera. And, and there are, you know, people will argue about like, you know, this idea of democratic failure. If, you know, if, if market failure is a justification for regulation, democratic failure is a justification for constitutional regulation. And so some people will argue about where democratic failure occurs. So some people have actually tried to revive Lochner as an example of like, you know, um, I forget exactly what the arguments are. I don't have them at the top of my head, but it's like, you know, that this was an effort to drive up wages or it was an effort to uh, favor one set of businesses over another or that was some kind of corrupt purpose at foot and lock. So if you think that's what's going on, then maybe you say, hey, when there's business regulation that is a result of lobbying or, you know, um, political power, maybe that's the kind of – maybe that's the same kind of justification that we see in, in Caroline products and maybe we should have strict scrutiny. But that is not our law. Our law is that for general economic regulations, rational basis applies or – Laws which directly affect a, which directly affect an enumerated constitutional right, we tend to get strict scrutiny with some exceptions, and for laws that target fundamental rights, which may not be enumerated, we get something like strict scrutiny, and for you know these we have these tiers of scrutiny for equal protection. Now, just to leave it, I want to leave it by teeing up Obergefell, mm. and so some of the issues that have arisen in thinking about gay rights, have been, well, are gays a suspect class? Meaning, are they the kind of discrete and insular minority mentioned in footnote four as to which we should be suspicious of laws which disadvantage them? And so we should insist on serious justification for laws which go out of their way to disadvantage gay people. Um, Also, is there a fundamental right to marry? You know, there's nothing in the Constitution about a right to vote or a right to marry like those are not in those are not listed rights right. there's no right to be left alone which is listed in the constitution nonetheless the courts have read in 
not under the right to contract, right? Uh, there's no, like, it's, it's the deprivation of liberty without due process into which we have read certain, auto- certain rights of autonomy, right to be left alone, rights to, like, define oneself. Mm-hmm. And man, people argue a lot about this, right? They argue a lot about what the content of that right to liberty uh, should be, um, whether it should be rights to basically contractual rights or rights to sexual privacy. All of this is raised. So when you read Justice Kennedy's opinion in Obergefell and the dissents, and it's no accident that Justice Roberts raises Lochner right. ear- early and often, um, <laughs> you know, the issue is going to be, well, should we move to just saying gays are a suspect class, in which case laws uh, like banning marriage of gays are probably almost certainly would fall under strict scrutiny under anybody's definition of strict scrutiny. Not, not because in that alternative model, not because marriage is particularly important, but because it's a law that targets gay people as such. As such, right. That would be your theory for what the problem was. Right. Um, a very different theory would be, look, marriage is a very important uh, in- social institution that people have to be free to enter if they desire with certain caveats and therefore you can't prohibit access right. to it. Um, the, the kind of more general right to a dignified life includes the right to form this kind of intimate association and not to have it denigrated by the state. So as it would be not a different a full way to explain association. what the problem was right. with a statute that said gay people can't have access to the social institution. So you guys should think about whether you find, uh, in, in Obergefell, whether you find this kind of right to define oneself as the more important lens into what went wrong and if that provides a firm enough ground on which the court, on which the court can be a true court and not a super legislature, or if you find the equal protection ground more compelling, that gays have rights to equal citizenship, equal membership in society, or if you happen to agree with the dissents, like maybe maybe you think gay marriage is a good idea, but the court shouldn't have decided this case this way, in which case I think you need to grapple with loving against Virginia, right? The case which struck down interracial uh, marriage bans. Um, you know, why are you willing to bite the bullet and say, yeah, I, I don't like those bans, but I think the right answer there was democratic uh, rather than judicial. And if that's the case, um, what's left of equal protection? You know, what is, is it because gays are, are different than, uh, than African-Americans on, on uh, kind of footnote four grounds? They're different kinds of minorities. Like, so I want you to think about all of these things because that's, that's really what's going on in Obergefell is how should the court think of its own role in deciding a question like this one? And that's kind of where we've wound up with the course, I think, right? And we've kind of gone through legal reasoning, legal yep. argument, and we've gotten really to the big question, which is almost always there. Like every every new big issue uh, disputed in law, in a way, is the court defining itself. What kind of institution will we be? What kinds of reasons will we use to decide these questions? And that About dis- what kind of institution we will be. Exactly, right? right. This, is, this is where you get to level four, right. right? Like what is our overriding theory for what gives us authority? And, 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 and defines us in relation to the other institutions that make up this legal system. Cool. What do you think? Is that about it? That's great. You're going to say bye? Uh, okay. I think the students are... I think do I have the, to say it now? <laughs> no, no, you can pop into class. Oh. You, you could join us. Yeah, maybe I'll do that. You just Probably pop not. in and say hi? Probably I not. I mean, I, th- I think the students are curious. Really? I, I would assume. I would be. Oh. I would be. I, I, you know, to be determined. <laughs> they say the unexamined life is not worth living. Okay. So maybe the unjoed life hmm. is, 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 I won't say not worth living, but maybe poor, <laughs> maybe poor. Hilarious. Okay. Uh, thank you guys for listening and we'll talk about this in class. <laughs>